That was an awesome mashup. Uh, I simply adore it. Uh, these guys are <laughs> doing some incredible work. Uh, so it's the 19th of February today. We got SCOTUS looking at stuff, deciding if they're going to take stuff. And I thought what we can do is take a trip down memory lane, memory lane of history, and see how all of this plays out. I'm really glad that a couple of my secret little send outs or inspiration got people working and looking. One thing I pride myself on, and I've said this before, is that when I actually have time for myself, which is, which is very rare <laughs> these days, very rare, very, very, very rare, um, is that I like to have coffee, cigarettes, and to peruse uh, the Library of Congress. So today I'm going to show you how stealing elections by the Democrats is not something new. I'm also going to kind of just touch base on what's going on here. I mean, there's some pure insanity happening. Uh, you know, we have, uh, the, you know, Texas completely shattered in regards to energy. And then we have to think, what was it with energy that we wrote a letter to, to the attorney generals about? Oh, that's right. Allowing people to have access to it. Kind of like the way people can easily access your water mains and how Florida was scared, had a scare that someone saw someone hacking the system. They were watching them increase the level of lie in the water, the chemical that, you know, can make a body disappear. They were increasing it in your water supply. But, you know, oh, don't today was just a one off. Nobody's going to talk about it. I mean, think what kind of uh, chipsets are they using? What kind of anything? I think I remember, and those that were around me in D.C. know, I did mention, hey, it looks like there's a lot of bottled water shortages happening in D.C. and Virginia. Why? Uh, you know, when I go out, uh, people think, you know, I'm fruity or something can I get a bottled water? And they just come, you know, with a, like a fancy glass bottle and they're pouring, oh, don't worry. We have like our own, I didn't give a shit what you have out there. I want bottled water. Why? It's not just your power grid. It's your water supply too. 
they can alter chemicals within your water supply. And now you're going to say, wait, that means nothing's safe. Your power's not safe. Your water's not safe. Exactly. Exactly. Could you imagine if someone wasn't, and that's what the story says, wasn't watching the screen to see that they were putting in insane, increasing it to like 125 million percent more of lie, L-Y-E, lie. If you ever want to get rid of a dead body, all you have to do is lay it out and drench it in lye. It will disintegrate it. It'll disintegrate bones. Could you imagine drinking water from your, from your tap and having, you know, your body disintegrate, I guess? I mean, I don't know if it would make it through the pipes because it would cause corrosion. That's what I would think. But I'm just saying, these are realities. Now, let's talk about this other reality that nobody wants to talk about. When there were tragedies and things that happened within our nation uh, that were controllable or not controllable, right, whichever it may be, disasters, President Trump was almost instantaneous in fixing the issues, sending help, you know, either that be kitchen paper, remember, where he was throwing that roll of bounty to people, right? Water, supplies, people, manpower, right? Everything. He was almost instantly there. But here we have Texas, who we had Chucky tell us, oh, it was a failure of coal and natural gas. And it's like, stomp. Stomp. Let's talk a little bit about that. Stomp. We already know that the solar and wind turbines froze and put a lot of work and um, overpowered uh, the natural gas systems. I mean, in this case, natural gas is actually the hero. Okay, let's, let's be straight. But it took the Biden-Harris administration almost a week of Texas being in such turmoil to get a hold of them. And then there's reports. Oh, you know, they don't want the feds in their thing. They don't want this. It's like, no, we're investigating and we don't want your asses here because we're going to see how someone hacked our systems and messed things up. Again, regardless, the Biden-Harris administration could have dropped the phone call. But, you know, Texas has been a thorn in their side like no other. Such a thorn, such a thorn that they have an aggressive attorney general. So I sent a letter out to the attorney general of Ohio telling him that I am extremely concerned at the fact that the secretary of state dropped the ball in respects to the elections, in respects to inspecting the software, because that's where my concern is, right? So bad, right? So bad. So I send that off and I get a cookie cutter response from the Ohio Attorney General's Constituent Services Office saying, dear constituent, this is days after, right? Thank you for contacting the Ohio Attorney General's office. The Attorney General is committed to protecting Ohio citizens. We appreciate receiving your comments and knowing your concerns. Again, thank you for contacting our office. If we can ever be of assistance to you in the future, please feel free to contact us. So I responded to that and said, I requested a formal response, not giving him feedback. If he doesn't respond, I'll enjoin him in the lawsuit for failure to 
execute his duties of office. So that was my response back to that cookie cutter email. But what I did get was an amazing response from the attorney general in Texas. Here, here's what he says, and I'm not a constituent of his. Thank you for your recent email. We appreciate you contacting the Office of Attorney General and making us aware of your concerns. I have forwarded your message to the appropriate staff for review. Please understand the role of this office is to advise and represent state entities and interests as specified in the Texas government code. So here he is. He's telling me what his job is. Listen. Under Texas law, the Office of the Attorney General is prohibited from providing legal advice, analysis, or representation to private individuals. However, I hope the following information is helpful. The Texas Secretary of State Elections Division maintains the uniform application of the Texas Election Code. The SOS, Secretary of State, right, provides detailed information on voting and elections in Texas, including the photo identification law, what kind of identification is required to vote in person, rights as a registered voter, and how to report alleged election fraud or voting rights abuse. You can access it here, and he gives it to me. Should the Secretary of State refer a matter to the Office of the Attorney General for enforcement, we will assess the specific legal issues to determine the most appropriate course of action because our office relies on the technical expertise of the Secretary of State regarding Texas election laws. We encourage you to provide information regarding possible election violations directly to the Secretary of State. Gave me all that information, emails, numbers, address, the whole nine yards. In addition, Texas law provides for the country or district attorney to have original jurisdiction to pursue possible violations of law. These prosecutors are granted extensive discretion in determining which cases will be prosecuted and how those cases will proceed before a grand jury. Again, thank you for writing. Please feel free to contact the Office of the Attorney General if we, if we may be of further assistance. Now tell me how rocking that email is from the Attorney General of Texas. He said, okay, I see what you're telling me. I get you. I like it. But here's the thing. According to law, I can't initiate this. But what I can do is, here is who you're going to send this to. Just send the same email over there, express that concern, and then they will employ me to investigate. Whoa. The difference between a attorney general that's not bought and an attorney general that's fighting. Hence why we see Texas being punished right now. Punished. And not just punished by the Chinese and the global powers that be, but punished by the Democrats. Punished by the court of public opinion. Punished, punished, punished. So what I'll do is I will, um, in the Telegram group, put a link to the document and it'll be um, what I wrote up and I'll make it so that um, it's more uh, cookie cutter. And then I'll put in the secretary of state's email and information. So that way all of you, because coordinated together, together in an instant move together. Whoa. The impact is like boom shaka, right? It's like big because then it's like 
flood. So this is what we need to be doing. So the difference between the one attorney general and the other is that the one attorney general actually said, okay, I'm digging this, kind of maybe did their homework and said, she's, she's not wrong. This is happening. This is it. But I can't do it. But what I can do is educate this citizen that has reached out to me and say, this is what the process is. I can't give you legal advice, but I can guide you as an attorney general to tell you what I do and how it happens. Now, the reason um, that I'm doing this, and this is why uh, I have to craft one more attempt to be attorney general, is because I've, I've figured out that if all remedies have not been exhausted, um, then my Q warrant would fail because the court would tell me that I'd have to appeal somewhere else. See, the Q warrant is a very specific uh, methodology. So if we wanted to have maximum impact in the state of Ohio, I have to jump all those hurdles. Now I've jumped out of the seven hurdles that I've had, six of them have been crossed. I'm done. So now the next hurdle is what the attorney general and the election divisions people come back with me because I have to give them the opportunity to respond. I have to give them the chance to say something. Now I've brought the problems that I have up to the attorney general, hoping that his stupid ass Dave would be like, well, let me just check up on this. Is this like for real? This is where he calls up, you know, the secretary of state and says, hey, LaDouche, I'm getting this email and it says that this is the process. Is this for real? Because I'm getting constituent email telling me that this is the process and it doesn't look good for you, dude. Is that the way it's done? And I know she's been asking you for information. So like what's going on? I need you to fix this. Are you aware this doesn't matter. You still need to respond. You can't cover up the shit you did. It's already out there. And I, I'll say this again. And I know it sounds quite cocky in stating it, but it's true. I never send an email out to any elected official, any person in public office and ask a question that I don't already have the answer to. So the, the key here is to be able to garner these documents in a transparent and, what is it called, chain of custody way. Can't just say I found it, right? I can't say, oh, yeah, it just fell in my lap. So LaDouche, uh, Secretary of State LaDouche is going to have a really big problem right now because his little guy that came back to me saying, oh, I finally received your communication. Yeah, that's because I boxed you in with your official one. You didn't want to be nice, you know, and take my nasty voicemails as a warning. You don't, you didn't want to respond to your web thing. You didn't want to respond to the only email address that the Bar Association had for you that was visible. You wanted... You could only respond when I sent you to that email a communication and say, I just received it. This is the first one. And it's like, fuck you. I have record of all the communications I have to you. You could say whatever you want. I want my shit. That's it. Give me the documentations I've asked you for. That's the bottom line. Now, it's okay that he's dragging his feet because Monday morning, I've already put together a document and I'm going to be going on Monday morning to the courts here in Cleveland and I am going to be filing a suit myself that he did not do what he was supposed to do and that he's hiding criminal activity um, that I am aware of and that he's not providing. And you know what? What? Am I going to lose? Psh, 
whatever. Who cares? Is the district judge going to say, well, what do you want? I'm going to sue him for something crazy. Like I want $10 billion. I want to make it like crazy where people are going to be like, that's nuts. And I'm be like, sure. Okay. Well, that's how much my nation matters to me. A hundred million dollars. Cause that's how much I need to get every single idiot that was elected fraudulently out of office. So because to get an attorney to actually file something, these fuckers want money. Well, then I will give them money, but I can guarantee you any lawyer that is taking money to file a lawsuit, right? And support the people. I understand it takes time and effort, but you can donate that time and effort because it's your freaking country too. Especially when all the people have done the work. So if that's what it takes to get an attorney that much money, he will have it. But I can tell you one thing, something that my father once told me that was so wise. If you take a penny from anyone in order to do something that you should have done yourself anyway, like if someone pays you to open the door when you should have opened the door for the lady in the first place, right? Or if someone pays you um, you know, to, to speak up for them. If someone to just unrighteous, if you get money in an unrighteous way, that money will never seed. It'll actually be your demise. Hence why we have so many one percenters depressed, fat, sick, hating everybody and talking about how they're, they're Dino Demos. What was it that that um, Hunter Biden would say, I'm Demos, the son of, and he got the gods wrong as well. Yeah. That's why they end up like this. And this is why, you know, they could have, you know, lovely whatever, and it turns out pear-shaped. It's, it's all about the energy behind how you, you know, go forward. You know, if you're doing something and you're causing people pain and suffering by doing it, damn, never sits well. Never says, well, energy is never created or destroyed. It is merely transferred. And uh, even money is energy. It's someone's blood, sweat, and tears. And if you take that from someone, someone gives you that to give them flowers and, and support. And instead you take it and you, I don't know, go get cocaine or, you know, have tranny porn on your phone. That doesn't end well for you. I'm, I'm just saying it does not end well. Or, or manicures, facials. <laughs> Or what else? Boyzillions. I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I'm really going to stop. So that's the way it is. Now, election theft has been something that has uh, that actually appeared uh, many, many times throughout history. Uh, one so was that of um, the 1940 elections with Roosevelt. Wendell Wil Wilkie actually ran and he lost. And he lost because of election theft. And everyone around him was canceled too. It's pretty interesting. So we're going to delve into that. So now let's just go to the Texas winter storm and um, how Biden will destroy Texas. I mean, again, does this not reinforce that the Biden-Harris administration are unfit for the United States of America considering that they have not sent aid. Remember when California totally pocketed all the money about 
forest fires and their stupid trains and they were wasting it. Did President Trump say, I'm not giving you help? The first thing he did was send them help. And then he said, listen, if you want federal help, you need to ship shape this stuff. All right. I'm helping because of the people. Other than that, you're screwed. I'm not going to give you a penny. But now why would the Biden administration turn his back to Texas? Hmm. Interesting. My home state, ice, snow, and gripping cold temperatures have paralyzed the state and its ability to produce electricity. Joe Biden's plans for America would make the situation even worse if they go through. Most of Texas's power is generated from natural gas. Many of those plants are now frozen. Natural gas wells and the components needed to operate them are frozen shut too, which means there is now a shortage of fuel to heat our homes and run the power plants. Because of that, the governor of Texas ordered all natural gas produced in Texas to stay in Texas. It's Governor Greg Abbott's responsibility to put Texans first. But think about what this means for other states reliant on Texas natural gas production. There will be shortages across the country. Joe Biden's plans would only make it worse. It's not good as we watch the price of natural gas surge. Many cities are now asking Texans to even boil water. The cold snap caused failures at the water treatment facilities too. But what if you have no natural gas or electricity? Now you have no water. Folks, you'd be at the mercy of the government. That is not a place I ever want to be. So let's review. For some people in Texas, they have no natural gas, no electricity, no potable water. This is in America. And it's not California, it's Texas. This, this is really bad, and a lot of people are suffering, and they're suffering unnecessarily. This is what you get when people who don't believe in governments are running your government. Well, Beto O'Rourke there and the Democrats are playing the blame game. But it's them that push the green energy deal here. Wind and solar that failed Texas this week. Wind's not blowing, sun ain't shining, and the solar and wind has now frozen over. The Democrats insisted we shut down coal-fired plants. Texas did, three of them. The push to go green turned deadly. All of this comes as Joe Biden wants to shut down fracking and drilling on federal lands. He wants to increase wind and solar production. All of it puts us at the mercy of Mother Nature. And Mother Nature just did what Joe Biden is striving for in Texas, limit production of fossil fuels. Just as we don't want America relying on other nations for our oil and gas, we don't want America reliant on one state like Texas either. And this winter storm proves what a fragile and precarious spot we are in. People are waiting hours for food, water. The last meal we had was two nights ago probably after she'll be fine hour of having electricity the pipe burst i walked to the thermostat and it was 33 degrees inside the house we're just not set up for situations like this well if you live in texas you are now learning firsthand just how weak americans are when it comes to our own survival adding to our electricity woes most of the states streets and highways are still shut down Trucks are having a real hard time moving goods and services. Grocery store shelves are empty. DoorDash, Amazon, FedEx, nothing's being delivered. Now imagine we get another storm on top of this one in Texas. Two more weeks. If that happened, 
We aren't expecting it. But if that happened, it would be disastrous. What do you do for food? I've got half a dozen truck drivers who work for me. Already a week and a half, no revenue. To them, it doesn't matter if it's COVID or a snowstorm. They need money. I can tell you what happens when we get to a situation like this. People will resort to crime, looting, burglaries. And what does Joe Biden do? He wants to disarm you. His policies directly put us all in danger. They limit our ability to survive from energy production to the ability to defend our families during times of unrest between the China virus and, of course, a storm and the great Texas Arctic blast that we're experiencing. All of it proves we are vulnerable. So the question now becomes, are you prepared? Most people aren't. My advice is this. Don't rely on government to get it done to protect you. Government to get it done to ensure you'll be okay. Don't rely on government because the only one you should be relying on for your own well-being is yourself. Hi, Emma Reckenberg here. And that is so true. You just got to rely on yourself and your gut mm -hmm. because they're not going to help you. They're te definitely not. And what the governor wants to do is like, no, forget this. We're going to have our own uh, natural gas here. We're not going to be exporting it. We're going to be doing what we say, and that's the way it is. And like I said, they're coming for your guns. I mean, they tried that whole false flag thing up in Philly. It didn't really work. didn't get much traction. They're coming for your guns. They're coming for your guns. I actually got a call from the NRA. Hey, you could get a lifetime for only 100-something dollars. Um, you know, give me, and I was like, look, dude, you just called me from a number that I just called from my other phone that doesn't exist. I'm not going to give you my credit card number over the phone so that I can, in, you know, help you. That's just dumb. Okay. I don't know who you are. You're obviously recording this phone call because it sounds like I'm on a speaker. So, you know, what can I say? They're coming for your guns. Everybody knows they are, and they're hyping themselves up. If they have your number, they will call you. Don't give your credit card number over the phone. Get in touch with your actual NRA rep if you want to support them. But I actually thought that they were filing bankruptcy. I'm like so confused into what's going on on that. I haven't even paid attention because we have other things to pay attention to. Space wars are happening. <laughs> Everyone's like, yay, we went to Mars. And it's like, oh my gosh. It's like saying, look, we have sliced bread. You know, and you would be like, yo, that's been around for a while. And it's like, no, it's not. It's totally new now. Totally new now. <laughs> Lone Star State. Damn. They're paving the way. Paving. <clears throat> excuse me. Paving the way. Um, so we have the Biden-Harris administration failing the state of Texas. Failing the state of Texas. Uh, failing beyond belief how it's like so bad and we also have a gun grab coming and then we have even a texan democrat was it a texan democrat mayor oh i don't remember hold on i have that report for you biden is going to allow twenty-five thousand asylum seekers to cross the border he's going to allow them no checks for covid just let them come in and a democrat mayor is actually speaking up against this. Listen to this. Democrat mayor of Del Rio, Texas, is urging Joe Biden to reconsider this all. 
Mr. President, my name is Bruno Lozano, mayor of the city of Del Rio, Texas, and I am pleading and requesting with you to please put a halt to any measures regarding the release of immigrants awaiting court dates into the city of Del Rio and surrounding areas. We do not have the resources available to house and accommodate these migrants within our community. That's a Democrat. You think Joe Biden's going to listen to him? I don't. Joining me now to discuss this, Republican Congressman of Florida, Greg Stubbe is with us, and Republican Congressman of Georgia, Barry Loudermilk is also here. Congressman, great to have you both on the program. Thanks for having us. Always good to be with you. So, Congressman Stubbe, huge immigration plans now being pushed onto Congress. You've got a Democrat mayor saying, Joe Biden, take a step back here. How are you going to push back against this, Congressman Stubbe? Well, we're going to keep fighting. I mean, Joe Biden wants to give 11 million illegal immigrants citizenship in our country. It's probably actually more than that. Uh, but unfortunately, we don't have Republicans don't have the majority in the House. So we'll continue to. Wait, I want you to think about something for a second. Illegal immigrants to be given citizenship in our country. Think about it for a second. What does that benefit the Democrats? Voters? Maybe. <laughs> What does it benefit the Democrats? Think about it. Why are they so hell-bent on putting in more people into our nation and making citizens out of them? Think about it for a second. How does it benefit them? This is what you always have to think about. When there's a move, you have to think what the motivation is behind it. So there's many. See, this is where they get caught into a catch-22, the illegal migrants. Right now, they're working under the table. They're making cash. You know, their friend has to rent a house. It's, it's, it's quite terrifying to be somewhere that you know you're not allowed to be, right? But what they want is, one, to insert them into the system. I mean, 11 million people coming onto the welfare system will make it collapse. Bye-bye, Medicare. Bye-bye, Social Security. We're just going to, re you know, give it an overhaul. Hey, all you old people, if you haven't been killed off uh, you know, by the governors that ensured your death, uh, we'll figure it out with the vaccine, how to get rid of all of you. So there's less of you to complain. Oh, and for those of you paying into social security, like, why didn't you get an acorn app? Right. That's going to be their response. So that's number one, collapse the welfare system. Number two, now they're on the books. Now these migrants will be paying taxes. And out of these 11 million migrants, <laughs> can tell you about 8 million and be like, fuck this, I'm going back. Because then they're going to see how there are no free rides. Then they're going to see how, you know, for every dollar we work, Uncle Sam takes 50 cents. And they're not going to like that either. Putting them on the system, more slaves to deal with, right? More people that they need and more loans that they're going to have to get from the IMF in order to, su to, to sustain it. See, it's all to their benefit. They enrich themselves. And this way, it's only fair since our system collapsed to join the global system that we have in place because the global system will help us. You see how that goes? That's basically what they're going for. Now, let's take a listen to Stubby, who I actually really like. Fight. We'll continue to talk about this, and hopefully, some of these moderate Democrats. We only have to pull five uh, from the floor over to our side. We'll see the reason of like what the mayor, the Democratic mayor in Del Rio, was talking about. 
we don't have the ability to take these individuals in, not even to mention the legal facts of admitting 11 million illegal immigrants into our country and the systemic failures that we're having in national security. You don't know who these people are. They're not being COVID tested. And you're allowing all of these people to come across the border. And oh, by the way, we're also going to have Joe Biden stopping the, the construction of the wall. So it's just a huge systemic failure and an influx that we're going to have on our national security and our immigration naturalization services. And, and Congressman Loudermilk, all of what Greg just pointed out uh, comes on the heels of what they're calling amnesty. They talk about 11 million people, and, and I'm with Congressman Stubbe. I think the number is probably more like 25 million illegals in America. They want to just wipe the slate clean. What about all the people that came here, sp spent a lot of money doing it right? There's no way this can get through, is there, sir? Well, I mean, there's uh, there's definitely a way it can get through because Nancy Pelosi doesn't believe in including any Republicans in any of the decisions you make. I mean, look at look at uh, what's happened with this COVID relief package as part of the budget. The budget committee wasn't even formed when she ramrodded it through the House. And so they're going to try to get this done. But I think what they're going to see that's different now is President Trump depoliticized the immigration issue. A lot of people think that, you, what, it's it's depoliticized? Yes, because even Democrats, as you just saw, and you pointed out in your monologue, Democrats along the border are seeing that Trump's plans worked. The walls worked. Uh, having people apply for asylum in Mexico, it worked. Caravans stopped. And just with the, the stroke of his pen, uh, Joe Biden is undoing all of the the uh, he really humanitarian policies toward illegals coming into this country that Trump and the Republicans were able to achieve. It's going away. But Democrats, especially those along the border, saw, hey, these policies did work and now they're going away all of a sudden. I think it's going to be a little different this time around with the American people. I think you're starting to see some kinks here in the Democrats' plan. Politico comes out with a report basically saying uh, this has a slim to none chance to, to get pushed through, that it's dead on arrival because of, of the Senate. And then instantly you start hearing Democrats like Cuellar saying, oh, we're going to piecemeal this together. We're going to do some smaller bills. Well, anybody that's followed Congress know if they want to do it big, you got to stuff it in a massive bill where they force you to vote for it. Doing this in smaller bills, to me, seems like they're trying, Greg Stubbe, to tell the radicals in their party, oh, don't worry, it may be smaller, and we'll push some other bills through at a later date. What do you think? Well, I sure hope that there's some moderate Democrats in some of these moderate districts that are willing to stand up to Nancy Pelosi and the majority. But at, to this point, just what Barry was saying, we haven't seen that. They have shoved through the COVID-19 package a $2 trillion bill without a single Republican vote in the House and a single Republican vote in the Senate. So if that gives you any instigation as to what this is going to look like going forward, they're going to try to push everything through. So the only way that things like this and horrible policies like this get stopped is some of these moderate Democrats in these moderate districts stand up and say, look, I'm not going to support that because I'm not going to take that back to my district. Well, they use reconciliation to do that. Congressman Loudermilk, they can't do that in the Senate this time around, can they? Well, they do have the opportunity to do two, uh, two reconciliation packages uh, during this Congress, and there are rules on the reconciliation. It can only deal with spending. It was the reconciliation was designed to cut spending. So it has to be fiscal in nature to meet the rules of the Senate. And the parliamentarian can basically has the power to say what can and cannot be in the bill. However, 
Chuck Schumer has already said, we'll just ignore the rules and go forward with it. Fortunately, some level-headed people like Joe Manchin has said they won't vote for anything that doesn't abide by what's called the bird rule in the Senate. So they're well, going to try. I mean, it's it, they're, they're going to try to push it just as far as they can, but I don't think they'll be quite as successful. Just like Greg said, we need some of the common yeah. sense folks, the few that are left in the in the Democrat Party to come along and do what's right for the American people. Well, it should be a wake-up call to voters out there. We don't want to be hanging our hat on guys like Joe Manchin, even though we're thankful he stands firm, and I sure would <laughs> applaud him if he does so. But uh, we've got to take back the Senate next time around in the House, Absolutely. too. Guys, it's always great to have you on the program. Greg Stubbe, Barry Loudermilk, thank you. Thank you. Great to see you. All right, so we've got immigration issues in Texas, not being uh, serviced by FEMA that they're entitled to. I mean, uh, corruption within their uh, power grids now that Biden allowed the Chinese to come in. I mean, that's just a coincidence, right? A total coincidence. We've got a lot going on. And... We have um, a bit of a complaint from the left. Apparently, Congress wants to fix the Supreme Court. On Thursday, the House Judiciary Committee held a hearing to control, to decide what, if anything, Congress can do to address a problem that's spiraling out of control. The House's interest in the shadow docket is an encouraging sign that at least some members of Congress want to exercise their own constitutional powers to help fix the Supreme Court. To understand, the Supreme Court has dramatically altered the way it decides most of its cases without acknowledging or justifying its radical shift. Listen carefully. Skodisgate. And this happened on the 6th of February. I'm just pointing it out. More and more often, the justices forego the usual appeals procedure in favor of a rushed decision-making behind closed doors in what is known as the shadow docket. They issue late night opinions on the merits of the case without hearing arguments or receiving a full briefing and often refuse to reveal who authored the opinion or even how each justice voted. The public is left to guess why or how the law has changed and what reasoning the court has embraced. You mean like FISA? You mean like FISA? Okay. You mean like FISA? Through its shadow docket, the court is quietly shaping the rules around elections, COVID regulations, immigration, and federal death penalty. Like clockwork. In June, that brings the Supreme Court back to the forefront of America's cultures, they say. The justices have issued rulings on the shadow docket, docket that have cleared the way for the first three federal executions in 17 years after lower courts had repeatedly halted them, refused to disturb a Nevada COVID-related emergency order that treated churches more harshly than casinos, blocked a grassroots effort in Idaho to influence, to increase funding for K-12 education, allowed President Donald J. Trump to finish using military construction funds to complete his controversial border wall, even though every lower court to consider the issue has ruled that such repurposing of funds is unlawful, pushed back resolution of a dispute between the House of Representatives and the Justice Department over the Mueller report in a way that will ensure that the Justice Department prevails 
prevented potentially hundreds of thousands of eligible voters in Florida from voting this November by refusing to freeze Florida's pay-to-vote law, froze a district court order that had required an Orange County jail to take measures its own policies already required to protect inmates from an outbreak of COVID-19. Those are just a few things that this shadow docket has done. It's quite interesting that people are very upset and publishing how upset they are that Congress is now pulling their sword and saying, we must stop this horrific Supreme Court from having secret courts and secret dockets that we need to know about because we don't know what happened with that FISA stuff because we can't see FISA stuff anymore. We want to see now that Judge Collier is out. We have no leaks. We need to have all the leaks. <laughs> see, that actually happened on February 6th. And that's where it was initiated. Actually, it was February 5th that the House Judiciary Committee talked about it. February 6th, they got together. So there's your SCOTUS gate. And now they're talking about it. Oh, I wonder what's going on there. It's quite interesting. It's quite, quite fascinating, actually. That SCOTUS is like, hmm. For the court's online calendar, SCOTUS has not held a conference session since January 22nd. They are to hold one today. If they don't rule on the Vance subpoena, stay in cert, Nadler should call Roberts to explain. He's not a member of a ruling class. He works for us, the people. Ooh. SCOTUS eyes whether police can seize gun from homes without warrants. I see. I see, I see, I see. Three things on the docket today. Lots of things on the docket. Did you miss that the Supreme Court killed the cases that were trying to hold Trump accountable for violating the monument cause of the Constitution? I didn't. Go to the BrennanCenter.org and check it out. So, shadow dockets. Pretty interesting. I don't think you guys ever heard that. Well, while we await to see what SCOTUS convenes today and what happens, why don't we take a look at how people are being canceled left and right? Cancel culture. And you know, this isn't something new. They did it in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, around the world. And here is President Trump's attorney who's just being canceled for defending him. Oh, when we were in the middle of impeachment, the president was acquitted, of course. The Trump attorneys won that case. You would not know that by looking at all the glowing profiles of the House managers. Take a look at this stuff. Ooh, Jamie Raskin won the impeachment trial before it began. Dem buzz about breakout stars of Trump impeachment. The beauty of Jamie Raskin's America on display at Trump's impeachment trial. Again, those were all the prosecutors. Meanwhile, what did the defense side get? Vandalism. One of the lead attorneys had this painted on his driveway. Can you believe that? Traitor. How about this from the Epic Times? Take a look, please. Trump impeachment attorney canceled by law school and civil rights law group. They're talking about our next guest, David Schoen, who was fantastic during the impeachment. He was on the floor of the United States Senate battling it out, uh, doing the right thing, in my opinion. And he won that case. 
David Schoen, welcome back to uh, Newsmax. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great honor. You bet. Thank you, sir. Uh, Look, this should be <laughs> the fifth victory lap, in my opinion, for you. It's been five days, whatever it's been. You should be on the ultimate professional high. It looks like the opposite is happening to you. Can you tell us about the dust up with the law school, please? Well, I had hoped to teach a law school course in the fall. I've been in talks with the law school about teaching a civil rights course. I've got 36 years of experience as a civil rights lawyer, major cases. I, I love being around the students. When this came up, I contacted the school to ask whether this would be an impediment and I was told that, uh, yes, it would be, that some faculty and students would feel uncomfortable to have me on campus if I were uh, getting involved in this case. I thought that was a sad commentary, quite frankly, um, but I also wouldn't want students to be uncomfortable. What's changed is the concept of liberalism. You know, liberalism used to favor the marketplace of ideas. They would want to hear all sides of a story. Everyone has something to bring to the table. Not anymore. This cancel culture has taken on the face. It's become more radicalism than liberalism, quite frankly. And... Go ahead. No, I, I'm so sorry this is happening. And that word, uncomfortable, oh, I'm uncomfortable. It's like a catch-all and you can try to make anything happen. I wanna see some footage of you, by the way, first, if you don't mind, roll it up, David, on the floor of the United States Senate. You were powerful, you were intelligent, you were articulate and brave. And again, the accolades, let me ask you this. Are you seeing increased business at least? Because the whole world saw, even, even the people on the other side, that you're a great lawyer. So is, it, is there any plus side to this? Uh, there's, I'll tell you what the plus side is. It's not about me. It's about Donald Trump and it's about the integrity of the institution of the presidency. This political weaponization of impeachment but in the uh, struck at the heart of the institution of the presidency, put it at risk and may have put it at risk in the future. But what I think you're gonna see now is a backlash. I think that Donald Trump has gained momentum from the win here. And let's face it, let's look at who he is. They knew who he was when he elected him, but in he the wasn't one of them. But look at what he did in office. He's the first so-called politician who kept his word. He made promises, he made NATO pay. He brought this first step back that saved lives. He moved the Jerusalem embassy, taking principle over political expediency, unprecedented moves in the Middle East, and he put America first. That's what I think is gonna come out here. They're going to empower him because everyone saw that the attack was unfair in this impeachment process. David, I like what you're saying. Uh, and they're trying, but how is he gonna overcome this? Okay, you mentioned his political deliverables, what he what he did and what he- He mentioned momentum. We talked about momentum, right? Can do, he's not on Twitter. Um, you know, they're trying to cancel him. It doesn't look like it's working though. You point out that he's got momentum, it seems like. What's next? How's this gonna play out? Well, I don't know, but I'll remind you of this, as you all well know, he overcame four years of major mainstream media attacking him and not telling his story the entire time. And he still accomplished all of these things. And more than that, even maybe, he, he overcame this Mueller commission, which was such a blemish on our history. The idea, the very idea of its nature, but then to, again, this is where I say they're tone deaf, to appoint a committee headed by a lawyer who was a partner in the firm that represented Hillary Clinton, to put an Andrew Weissman as a second in command, running the thing, in my view, the most ethically bankrupt prosecutor I've ever come across. Hillary Clinton's lawyer, Jeannie Ree, in her email scandal, was on that committee. The American public demands fairness, and they saw no fairness there. They saw, again, the weaponization that cost us millions of dollars and tried to derail the presidency. There's and gonna be backlash. Uh, the, I want there to be appropriate backlash, nonviolent backlash, we all do. Of course. 
the same time, I feel like people are running scared a little bit. You know, they're like keeping their heads down. Yeah. I'll tell you, I was in Florida not too long ago. There were Trump flags as far as the eye could see before January 6th. I sure. didn't see anything. I don't, I, you know, I, I don't want to overstate the case, but I will tell you this. After I finished that video presentation at the impeachment so-called trial, which was nothing that resembled a trial, the internet lit up. I've heard from so many people who were empowered by that. Senators came up afterwards. Finally, someone struck back. We've been taking this beating and nobody's speaking out, speaking out. Sure, shows like yours and John Hannity and others show some of these videos, but exposing the double standard, the hypocrisy meant a great deal to the American people. I'm hearing from people all over the world who don't know me and I'm not important to that equation, but they're saying how they really appreciated someone speaking up in the name of Donald Trump for them. So let me just ask you, because uh, I know you're a brilliant attorney. We all saw that. Now you're talking a bit more about politics, and uh, I like that, too. What's next for you? I mean, uh, look, you know the battle we're in the middle of. Um, well, how, what's next for you? I mean, look, apparently you don't have much of a future as a law school professor. You should. but So what are you going to do? I'm a small town lawyer, you know, in Montgomery, Alabama. That's what I right now anticipate returning to. And I, I like to use my law practice to help people. I want to help people get do better in life. That's what I've done for 36 years. And that's what I hope to continue being able to do. All right. Well, I hope you keep in touch with the president, your uh, former client, uh, because I think you guys could work very well together. All right. You guys should stay in thank touch. You, very much. you bet. David Schoen, thank you. Best of luck. The Schoen Law Firm in Montgomery. And you also have an, uh, an office in uh, Atlanta, correct? I don't practice in Atlanta, but I, have, I work in New York and Montgomery and different places around the country. Um, as I say, you know, you have to be open to all kinds of ideas. And what I try to do is advance people, uh, advance the cause of people. Maybe we should hire him for Ohio. Who want to be, get ahead and fulfill the American dream. And that's what I think Donald Trump stood for, for so many of the people. Beautiful. David Schoen. Hey, please drop by the next time you're in New York. Thank you very much, David Schoen. Great Thank work, you. by the Thank way, you. again last week. Thank you, sir. Yeah, David Schoen. Thank you. Thank you for your service and being such a good man. Now, let's talk about um, Rachel Maddow losing her shit. You know, that dude, Maddow, didn't cry, but almost did. I want you to listen to her because she'll tell you exactly why she's so upset. It's, it's quite Whack, fascinating. Whack. Here we go. It's quite fascinating. This is where you see what's really going on when this insanity happens. Up in the 1970s, they didn't care. Bruno Indelicato was called Whack Whack. And he was charged and convicted of Carmine Galante's murder and the murder of the other two Bonanno crime family guys who were at that table with him at that day at that restaurant. What did I say about the mafia in Telegram? Yeah, we talked about that for a little bit. Each of those three murders was treated as a constituent element of Bruno and Delicato's ultimate conviction on racketeering charges. What is racketeering, right? It means um, basically not just crime, but crime as part of an organized enterprise. That's why they used it against the mob so much, right? Considerably tougher penalties for crimes that get prosecuted under that racketeering umbrella. Here's the thing, though. Mr. Wackwack. Uh, Bruno and Delicato had a really good lawyer at the time who eventually argued in his case, it made its way through the court system, 
that although this looked at the surface like an incredibly black and white case, I mean, literally, this is whack whack, puts on a ski mask and shoots the cigar at an Italian restaurant in Bushwick, right? Like it doesn't sort of get more black and white than that in terms of mob hits. But his lawyer was good enough to complicate the the circumstances considered by the law to a considerable and lasting extent. <laughs> His lawyer used that crazy case to force an entire 12-judge panel of the Federal Appeals Court in New York, the Second Circuit, to reckon for the first time in that case, in Bruno's case, with the real specific legal definition of racketeering. Uh, oh, are you upset? Did the mafia... Did the mafia ruling hurt you? <laughs> what did I say about the mob? And there's a lot of things that's going to be coming out in regards to the mafia, not just the guy that claims that he was, you know, a Q follower and killed someone because, you know, whatever. Ah, there's more, but there's more. And I did telegram you, damn, that mafia sure got them shook because I have eyes everywhere. Well... And I have an unfair advantage. I already know how it plays out. There's key things that I remember because it's really hard to remember everything. Racketeering had been used in the law for quite some time, but it was that case that led to the first legally tested, specific, rigorous definition of racketeering under U.S. federal law. That lawyer for Bruno Indelicato, Mr. Wackwack. The lawyer for him who turned that gangland bloodbath case <laughs> into a legal landmark that still matters today, that changed forever the way racketeering is used in U.S. federal law. He's still around. That lawyer, as a prosecutor and then as a defense attorney, litigated dozens of organized crime cases, including some, some of the highest profile cases in the worst of the mafia wars right. in New York City. Godfather. As a prosecutor, he ran both the appellate unit and the criminal unit at SDNY in two different stints in that storied U.S. attorney's office. He ran both of those divisions at SDNY. With all of that experience as a prosecutor, uh, he's now one of the highest profile big deal, white collar defense lawyers at one of the fanciest law firms in New York, a firm called Paul Weiss. And that lawyer just got a new job. The New York Times reporting tonight that earlier this month, he was sworn in as a special assistant DA, which seems like an unlikely godfather three. Do you guys love movies? Because I do. Think about it title for a guy with that kind of pedigree and that kind of history, but that's what he is now. He's sworn in as a special assistant DA at she the won't state cry prosecutor's for us, office in Manhattan. He has taken leave again. from his very fancy private firm and instead taken a temporary gig to assist prosecutors in that office. He has upended his whole life in private practice, put everything else on hold. He's been sworn in with this special status. Also, he can work with state prosecutors in New York on precisely <laughs> one case. Like I said, the mom's got some And that one case is the investigation underway in that office of the Trump Organization. <laughs> this is the ongoing criminal investigation of former President Trump and his business. It reportedly includes allegations of tax fraud, bank fraud, insurance fraud. It started with an investigation related to the hush money campaign finance felonies for which Michael Cohen went to prison and which led prosecutors to describe President Trump as individual one, an unindicted co-conspirator. That investigation by state prosecutors has since reportedly expanded to include wider allegations about 
basically, uh, the president and his company allegedly keeping two sets of books for various Trump properties, including Trump Tower. So they could, according to investigators, potentially defraud tax authorities and defraud banks and defraud insurance companies by using two different sets of books with two different sets of valuations for all of the Trump major properties. The Times reporting tonight that the case has recently generated more than a dozen new subpoenas. This is also the case that produced subpoenas to financial firms for personal and business records and, and tax records related to the former president. Lower courts have ruled that those subpoenas are valid and should be enforced, and these state prosecutors should get access to those documents. Both CNN and the New York Times are reporting in depth tonight on the mystery surrounding what's happening with those subpoenas and what's happening with that case in the United States Supreme Court right now. This New York state investigation of President Trump is one of two live criminal investigations that he's facing that we know about. One of them is the criminal investigation that has just been opened into his conduct in Georgia in terms of him pressuring Georgia state officials to basically corrupt the election outcome in that state. The other is this New York investigation into potential financial crimes, tax fraud, bank fraud, insurance fraud. Well, those New York prosecutors need the president's financial records in order to press this case. And they say they need his tax records in order to press this case. They have issued subpoenas for those records. Lower courts have said they should get them. But since October, they've been waiting on the, on the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, to find out if they're getting those records that have been subpoenaed. Lower courts say they should. The Supreme Court is just sitting on it. Aww. The Supreme Court somewhat inexplicably sitting on this request to deal with that matter Damn. for four months now. I know. It is an unusual and as yet unexplained delay from the Supreme Court Why that is she having cry material for consequences for what seems like a very live, very active, and newly ambitious investigation, a criminal investigation of the former president in New York. Even as that New York prosecutor's office drafts in new, serious outside firepower to assemble that case against Mr. Trump, the Supreme Court is sitting on the documents that they need for their investigation. Oh. Oh. Oh, oh, hey, dear. thanks for watching our YouTube channel. You should know we should watch only when she cries. Let me remind you just what an Amer what American exceptionalism is from none other than Scalia, because the whole Internet today on the left and those that don't understand how shit works on the right are upset with shadow dockets. Specifically, Ted Lieu tweeted out, why is, the, why is the SCOTUS like doing these midnight decisions, you know, without like putting their names on it? It's called the FISA court. But take a listen to what Justice Scalia had said. Um, this is from 2016. Uh, it was uploaded on 2016, sorry. Um, it was uh, from a hearing um, where he was in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee on the role of judges under the U.S. Constitution. And um, he, he spoke in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee on uh, October 5th, 2011. I want you guys to hear him. Happy to be back in front of the Judiciary Committee, where, where I started this uh, 
pilgrimage. Uh, I am going to get even more fundamental than uh, uh, my good friend and colleague. Like him, I, I speak uh, to students, especially law students, but also college students and even high school students quite frequently about the Constitution uh, because I feel that we're, we're, we're not teaching it very well. Um, I, I speak to law students from the, the best law schools, people presumably especially interested in the law, and I ask them, how many of you have read the Federalist Papers? And, and well, a lot of hands will go out. No, not just number 48 and the big ones. How many of you have read the Federalist Papers cover to cover? Never more than about 5%. And that, that is very sad. I mean, if, especially if you're interested in the Constitution. Here's a document that says what the framers of it thought they were doing. It, it's such a, a profound exposition of political science that it is studied in, in political science courses in Europe. And yet we, we have raised a generation of Americans who are not familiar with it. So when, when I speak to these groups, the first point I, I make, and I, I think it's even a little more fundamental than the one that uh, uh, Stephen has just uh, put forward. I, I ask them, what do you think is the reason that America is such a free country? What is it in our constitution that, that, that makes us what we are? And I guarantee you that the response I will get, and you will get this from almost any American, including the woman that he was talking to at the supermarket, the answer would be freedom of speech, freedom of the press, no unreasonable searches and seizures, no quartering of troops in hope, those marvelous provisions of the Bill of Rights. But then I tell them, if, if you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. Every president for life has a Bill of Rights. <laughs> the Bill of Rights of the, of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press, big deal. They guaranteed freedom of the speech of the press, of street demonstrations and protests, and anyone who is, who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that, that is wonderful stuff. Of course, just words on paper, what, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union, which is what our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. They didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power in one person or in one party. And when that happens, the game is over. The Bill of Rights is just what our framers would call a parchment guarantee. So the, the real key to uh, the distinctiveness of America is the structure of our government. One part of it, of course, is the independence of the judiciary. But there's, there's, there's a lot more. There are very few countries in the world, for example, that have a bicameral legislature. 
Oh, England has a House of Lords for the time being, but the House of Lords has no substantial power. They can just make the Commons pass a bill a second time. France has a Senate. It's honorific. Italy has a Senate. It's honorific. Very few countries have two separate bodies in the legislature equally powerful. That's a lot of trouble, as you gentlemen doubtless know, to get the same language through two different bodies elected in a different fashion. Very few countries in the world have a, a separately elected uh, chief executive. Sometimes I go to Europe to talk about separation of powers. And when I get there, I find that all I'm talking about is independence of the judiciary, because the Europeans don't even try to divide the two political powers, the two political branches, the legislature and the chief executive. In all of the parliamentary countries, the chief executive is the creature of the legislature. There's never any disagreement between them and the, and, and the, the prime minister, as there is sometimes between you and the president. When, when there's a disagreement, they just kick them out. They have a no confidence vote, a new election. And they get a prime minister who agrees with the legislature. And, uh, you know, the, the Europeans look at the system and they say, well, it passes one house. It doesn't pass the other house. Sometimes the other house is in the control of a different party. It passes both. And then this president who has a veto power vetoes it. And they look at this and they say, uh, it is it is gridlock. And, and I, I hear Americans saying this nowadays, and there's a lot of it going around. They, they talk about a dysfunctional government. Because there's disagreement, and, 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 they, and the framers would have said, yes, that's exactly the way we set it up. We, we wanted this to be power, uh, contradicting power, because the main, uh, the main ill that beset us, as, as Hamilton said in, in The Federalist, when he talked about a separate Senate, he said, yes, it seems inconvenient, but inasmuch as the main ill that besets us is an excess of legislation, it won't be so bad. This is 1787. He didn't know what an excess of legislation was. <laughs> so uh, uh, unless Americans can appreciate that and learn, learn to love the separation of powers, which means learning to love the gridlock, which the framers believed would be the main protection of minorities, the main protection. If, if a bill is about to pass that really comes down hard on some minority, they think it's terribly unfair. It doesn't take much to throw a monkey wrench into into this into this complex system. So Americans should uh, should appreciate that, and and they should learn to love the gridlock. Uh, it's it's there for a reason. So the legislation that gets out will will be good legislation. Um, and thus conclude uh, my opening remarks. <laughs> and he's right. That is what American exceptionalism is. And um, people seem to forget it. Just how exceptional America really, really is. I um, found this um, clip um, on Wendell Wil Wilkie. I want to talk about him today. Only because it's, um, it's quite different. But we'll do that after the break. Let's let's go get let's go get some coffee and listen to the song because you know what we need to remember that nothing comes to us without striving for it. You can't climb a mountain without hiking it up. 
right? Sweating, scraping your knees and climbing that mountain. You will never get to the mountaintop. You have to do something. So you should be on the page of doing whatever it takes to break those chains. For these tripping in the world could be dangerous. Everybody's stuck on this culture race. Negative, nepotist. Everybody's waiting for the fallen man. Everybody's praying for the end of times. Everybody hoping they could be the one. I was born to run. I was born for this. Whip, whip, pull me like a race horse. Pull me like a rip cord. Break me down. Up. I wanna be the slip, slip, word up on your lip, lip, letter that you rip, rip, break me down, build me up. Whatever it takes, cause I'll be trembling in my face, I do whatever it takes, cause I love how it feels when I break the chains, whatever it takes, yeah, And it seems like all the good guys are doing whatever it takes. And never let anyone tell you that you are the underdog. You are the one in control. And what we are seeing right now in Texas is uh, pretty interesting. We're all heroes. And in the end, it will be Texas, that lone star state, that will make the best case of how unfit this administration is and take it home. Uh, because you have to see it. A lot of people are fixated on time in respects to a clock. And I hope for those of you that have been following me from the beginning of February, the first thing I told you on February 1st is that this will seem like the longest month on the planet. The longest of this year. And yet it is the shortest the shortest, according to your time. See, time is nothing but what you make it. The reason this is so long is because things are battling. Timelines and outcomes are battling. And those that are directing it are the people. And when there's so much clash, there's delay. It's kind of like when you're trying to leave the house. You want to leave, right? But you got to get your keys. If you lose your keys, then you're delayed. And if there's 20 people looking for the keys and everyone's right, you're walking on top of each other. Everyone's trying to find the way to leave the house, but you can't because everyone's doing it in their own way looking for these keys. This is why it's so long. Everything will come into alignment. Everything. Now, the shadow docket hearing happened yesterday evening, uh, well, afternoon-ish, evening-ish. It happened while I was busy with lawyers. Uh, I wanted to play a part of it so that way you can hear just how concerned they seem to be. They, they seem very, very, very concerned. And you have to ask yourself why they seem so concerned and why they're so adamant on figuring out what's going on, how it's going on. It's just all really bizarre. 
So let's take a look at the Judiciary Committee and their concerns about the Supreme Court docket and caseload. That's that's basically what it was titled. Take a listen. Live coverage on C-SPAN 3. Our hearing today. If you would like to submit materials, please send them to the email address that has been previously distributed to your offices, and we will circulate the materials to members and staff as quickly as we can. I will now recognize myself for an opening statement. Welcome to this subcommittee's first hearing of the 117th Congress on the topic of the Supreme Court's shadow docket. The Supreme Court is one of the nation's most vital institutions. Its decisions have consequences that are wide ranging and far reaching, and the public's ability to learn how and why those decisions were made is critical to maintaining open justice. <clears throat> this transparency is a foundational element of the Supreme Court's integrity. For many of the Coates notable cases, we know how the majority reached its decision. We know which justices agree or disagree with the majority's opinion and why. And we have detailed briefing from the litigants and third parties about their views. Importantly, in most instances, most instances, this process gives the public months to scrutinize and understand the significant issues at bar and their potential impact. Yet not all of the court's work takes place so openly. There exists a segment of decisions on what is unofficially called the shadow docket. Coined by Professor William Baudet in 2015, the shadow docket comprises emergency orders and summary decisions not found on the court's main docket. Here, the justices make their decisions based on shorter than usual briefs, <clears throat> without oral arguments and under a tight timeline. The justices are also not required to publicly record which way they have voted. And as a result, the public has little or no insight into the court's decision-making. Despite the brevity of the court's consideration of cases on the shadow docket, the stakes are still high, sometimes a matter of life and death. Over the last year alone, decisions on the shadow docket have effectively ended the 2020 census count, cleared the way for the first federal executions in 17 years, and have covered some of the last administration's most controversial policies, such as the border wall, the travel ban, abortion, and transgender rights. Matters relating to or impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic are also on the shadow docket, including state election laws and state rules limiting attendance at places of worship. Shadow docket has expanded in recent years. We can point to a few reasons why. Among them, a large share of emergency requests during the Trump administration were at the request of the federal government. Such requests are not unprecedented, but the increase in volume certainly is. Under the Trump administration, the Solicitor General sought five times the number of such emergency or extraordinary petitions and the George W. Bush and Obama administrations combined. The divisiveness of these decisions seems to have risen in tandem. 
an increasing number of emergency orders on the, on the shadow docket are decided by a narrow 5-4 margin. Uh, thank you for your testimony, Professor Vladek. And Mr. Ali, uh, the floor is yours, five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Issa, members of the subcommittee. Thank you for inviting me to testify today. The very description of what we're talking about, the shadow docket, makes clear that it does not usually get public attention, and I applaud the subcommittee for exploring it today. I plan to focus my testimony on one of the most frequently recurring issues on the shadow docket, the execution of a human being by state. This is the most solemn act our legal system authorizes. Mr. Vladek explained how the shadow docket resolves issues on undeveloped facts and uncertain law. Those features are at their most disturbing when we are talking about executions. When it comes to ending someone's life, there is no do-over. Mr. Vladek described the legitimacy problem of a judicial system that operates on unsigned and unexplained orders. When the matter is life or death, the need to ensure transparency and, and public confidence in our legal system is at its apex. Yet presently, the Supreme Court decides weighty execution issues in the middle of the night, often upon hours or even just minutes of having the briefing. In the most disturbing of these cases, the Supreme Court allows executions to go forward without explanation after a lower court, which has had substantially more time to consider the evidence and arguments, has concluded that the impending execution likely violates the constitution and laws of our country. I think it's important to pause for a second and think about that. When the Supreme Court reverses without any explanation, a person is executed even though the only analysis we have on the public record says the execution would violate the constitution. Let me give a clear example of the shadow docket's arbitrary treatment of this ultimate punishment. It involves a story about three men, a Muslim, a Buddhist, and a Christian. Each of these men sought the very same thing, to die with a religious advisor of their own faith by their side to guide them through the final moments of their life. When Dominique Hakim Marcel Ray, a devout Muslim, asked for an imam by his side, he was told no. No imams, but he could have a Christian chaplain in the execution. Representatives were either restate or clarify, or the court were uh, the high court were to clarify that a judge's jurisdiction is only as to the plaintiffs in front of them, uh, recognizing that a class would be different than an individual. Would this uh, mitigate a great many, or at least some, of those uh, cases that went to the high court because they effectively shut down uh, the entire United States as to the administration? Yes, Mr. Ranking Member. One portion of the shadow docket, and again, it's, it's certainly not the, the whole thing, but one of the contributing factors of the shadow docket is the increasing use of so-called nationwide injunctions or as I think your focus focusing more on the right issue, defendant-oriented injunctions. Are they upset that this whole election fraud may be done? So, well, is that what they're upset about? Hold Thirty on. seconds. Let's listen to those to an ideological. Hold on. Sympathetic. You have to understand. I did tell you that FISA goes both ways. I did tell you that this was coming, and and yet, I I turn back into the whole time thing. Fix points in time. 
events in the direction of that path. Trying to choose my words carefully here. Fixed events will always happen because nothing can stop what's coming. While they delay and deter, deter things from occurring, it only makes them more painful. I mean, it's the 19th of February. I want you to take a look at the 19th of February, the whole 19 days that have gone past. How much shit has actually happened? Think about it. I want you to think of bullet points of all these things that have happened just in these 19 days. Now, I've always said that things change from one second to the next. The second that just passed was the foundation for the second that's to come after this second presently now. While they've delayed the inevitable, it only makes it that much sweeter and that much stronger. See, I'll, I'll give an example. So they failed on the impeachment. They knew they were going to fail, right? They did it because they thought that if they can put it forward and they can have witnesses, it would happen. But they didn't expect that the whole witness thing would backfire in their face because it would have prolonged it, prolonged it, and there's going to be no State of the Union. So instead, they've done exactly what they are capable of and show the world their hate. So now to delay everything that SCOTUS is doing, to delay everything that the law, the law that they have not yet changed, gives us the ability to do, they've introduced like a no glory for hate act. Dude, first person under that should be George Bush, should be uh, Lyndon Johnson, should be McCain. We should throw him out, right? But anyway, that's disgusting. And the reason they're doing it is because they don't want any President Trump monuments or buildings. They're hoping that there can be a way that they can stop it even just a little bit because then in the future, people will look back at President Trump as something but a horrific experience. But the thing is, it's not. This was the way it was supposed to go. You were going to fail because you lack the ability to be humble, the ability to have faith in good. <laughs> Time. Damn, you bitches delay everything. But again, it's just so much better. It's like, oh, I'm telling you, it is so good. I've not, let's just put it this way. The insanity that has happened in just 19 days of this month, and we still have another nine days to go of this month, right? Should demonstrate to you just how panicked they are. <sighs> I want to say it, but I'm not. I'm going to think about it, how I'm going to say this. I'm going to think about it. Like judge, that judge's interpretation of the law then is given binding force for right holders throughout the entire nation, including in other circuits where other litigants' claims would ordinarily be judged and adjudicated under the law of, of those other circuits. And so what you systematically see is 
depending on the ideological valence of the case, right, there are certain jurisdictions that conservative plaintiffs will go to when they want to seek a nationwide defendant-oriented injunction against what they view to be progressive measures. There are certain jurisdictions that left-leaning plaintiffs will go to when they're seeking a nationwide defendant-oriented injunction against what they perceive to be conservative measures. And you're having constitutional law driven by judges who don't reflect a fair cross-section of the federal judiciary, who aren't, who, who deviate substantially from the median federal judge, so to speak. And in terms of both the choices of cases that wind up being brought, the, the way in which the district court adjudicates those cases, the opinions that then are, are sent up for review, this, has a, this affects not only the practical consequences of the court's ruling, but it it, it has an impact on the, what, what the court is actually holding in those opinions. So you're absolutely right. The effects of forum shopping go far beyond just impacting a particular case to shaping constitutional law for the nation. Thank you. Thank I'm you. about out of time. Um, so just to sum it up, to me- 30 seconds left. Pardon me? 30 seconds. Okay. It seems inherently unfair to allow one judge in a specific jurisdiction to issue a ruling which essentially binds the entire nation when there are a score, there are a huge number of judges in other districts who would come to just the opposite point of view. And we may have hated that happening in the previous administration. I think the Democrats are gonna to come to hate that in this particular administration. And so we do need to work together in a bipartisan manner to do something about this. And I yield back my time, thank you. I thank the gentleman. Uh Next, we will go to the gentleman from Hawaii, Mr. Liu, for five minutes. Mr. Liu. Uh, uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, for calling this uh, hearing on the- Wait, listen to what Ted has to say. He's, he's very key here. Listen to what he says. It's a very important issue. And the issue today isn't really about how lower courts or appellate courts uh, happen to look at injunctions and how the Supreme Court looks at injunctions is actually about the Supreme Court issuing orders in the dark and not uh, even putting a name uh, on it. So one of the witnesses uh, had testified that a mystery justice has signed on to a particular order. Can you just explain a little more what happened in that specific issue? Of course. So that was a situation in which there was a decision to stay in execution and um, four justices uh, put their name on it, but it takes five justices uh, to rule on something. And so there was clearly someone lurking in the background that, that cast that vote, but did not want to be accountable for it. Um, and so Justice Scalia wrote extensively about why having public uh, records of one's votes is very important in the system because it protects, and I talked about this in my written testimony, someone from taking one position one day and, and the polar opposite position the next day. And so when we don't have visibility and insight into what votes the justices are casting, because they don't have to give them to us unless they want to, um, then we end up with a situation where we don't know who the, the majority of the court is on any particular case. And has the court or any justices ever offered any rationales for why they believe they can sign on to um, orders without disclosing their name? So I think this gets back to something that Professor Vladek was alluding to, uh, which is on the general orders docket, most of the decisions that are made are routine docket management questions that don't end up um, needing to have any judge's name on it. Some of them can be disposed of by one justice. Some of them might go to the full court, but they don't need to um, have an opinion, have any explanation. And so the problem that we're seeing is that these quasi-merits cases are now being disposed of on the orders docket. And so these normal processes 
Rutgers docket of not having a name, not having an opinion, um, not having the full process and briefing um, are now being used in these cases that should be on a merits docket or should at least have more process, including having justices announce you know, what their votes are, having majority opinions that provide reasoning and having concurring and dissenting opinions as are appropriate. Uh, and does Congress have the power to write legislation requiring justices to sign their names to quasi-merits uh, orders or decisions? I think I defer to Professor Vladek on this question. Um, I, I, well, I, I, thank I, you, Mr. Alicom, for your answers. Uh, Professor Vladek? Yes. Yeah, Congressman, I, I think it's a close question. Congress has never tried to before, and even if it might be within Congress's raw constitutional power, I, I'm not sure it would have the desired result. I mean, there have been proposals for a while to have the court disclose the vote count on grants of certiorari or denials of certiorari, and I think what the court would do if any proposal was ever enacted into law is have the is have the public vote count always be unanimous, um, even if the private vote count wasn't. I, I think the, the better, I think, way to think about reform, um, and Mr. Ali talked about this in his opening statement, is to think about ways of taking pressure off the shadow docket. Um, to Solicitor General Ali Khan's point about how these are quasi-merit adjudications, you know, try to figure out if there are ways to help the court actually have merit adjudications if these cases really present circumstances warranting that kind of dramatic expedition. Congressman, we saw that already this term with the apportionment case, which the court got all the way onto its merits docket and decided in a signed decision pretty quickly. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the reform conversation, I think, ought to start with ways of taking pressure off the shadow docket before it moves to you know, punishing the justices or um, prohibiting certain kinds of behavior. Um, so thank you. Uh, Solicitor General Ali Khan, back to that issue about where the Mr. Justice signed on. Why is it that we knew the names of the other justices in that particular case? Because they disclosed them. So in cases where they want to write separately, they want to provide, even if it's one sentence or one paragraph of analysis, um, the justice that is writing it will announce who they are, and then anyone who joins that will add their name to it as well. So in this mystery justice case, we have someone that agreed with the ultimate result, which was to grant the stay, um, but did not subscribe to the opinion or the, the order that had been uh, published in them. Basically, they want to know who did it. They want to know who they can't trust. They want to know who they need to get rid of. <laughs> Thank you. And then uh, one last question, uh, Professor Vladek. What if uh, there was a, a congressional law that said, because death penalty cases are so important and, and not reversible uh, if the uh, execution happens that when you have ordered those cases, they've all got to disclose what the, who the justices are. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a narrow approach. I, I think another, another way I would be thinking about death penalty cases, Congressman, um, is something Mr. Ali alluded to, which is perhaps- yeah, I mean, what if they murder us all and have us hang in the gallows for what we did? Hold on, let's go somewhere else. A problem- Give an adequate report of the courts of the sort of fundamentally unusual. Here we go. The power of lower. Let's listen to Dan Bishop. Litigation and a lack of resources, and so I do think you know reprogramming resources to the district court or the courts of appeals, whether in the form of judges or uh, court personnel like law clerks, would be very helpful. Thank you, uh, Mr. Ali. Do you have an opinion about the courts and the need for for more to, to adequately address the justice of the 21st century? Yeah, I, I would say that this actually makes even more urgent the conversation we're having today. I come back to Representative Liu's question about deference to fact-finding. Here we have the very busy lower court judges we're talking about holding hearings, hearing evidence from witnesses and testimonies, testimony, issuing opinions, and then making fact-findings as they're supposed to do. 
And when it gets up to the Supreme Court, after all of that work has been done and the actual standards are considered in writing, it's swept aside, unsigned, unreasoned opinion. And so I think it just makes the whole process all the more offensive. What's offensive so, is, is that they feel that they have to, let's see what Van Jones. We have, right, and so for orders that apply to third party non-litigants across the state rather than the nation, if you're target defendant oriented injunctions, you'll pick, pick up those as well. Gentlemen's time has expired. At this time, I will call upon the learned gentleman from New York, Mr. Jones, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You are too kind. Uh, I will say that in a discussion about the Supreme Court's rogue, highly secretive process called the shadow docket, we have spent more time, or at least my Republican colleagues have, uh, talking about uh, the um, the process by which nationwide injunctions are issued. I say this as a former candidate just a few months ago who successfully obtained a nationwide injunction and that I think helped to save our democracy and ensure a free and fair election. I successfully, along with co with co-plaintiffs, obtained an injunction to suspend a postmaster general of DeJoy's uh, proposed operational changes that were meant to undermine uh, that uh, that election, which was largely facilitated by mail-in ballots. In any event, many thanks to all of our witnesses for helping to shed light on the Supreme Court shadow docket. I'm troubled that the court decides many of our nation's most consequential cases, from elections to executions of such speed and such secrecy. Many of these shadow docket decisions seem to betray our constitutional commitment to due process. And I especially want to thank the litigators appearing before us, Mr. Ali, so Solicitor General Ali Khan, and of course, Professor I want to say something. So now the shadow docket is coming up and it was aired on C-SPAN. Um, and you would have to ask yourself, well, why are there shadow dockets? Well, it's mostly because they don't want influence and they don't want people thinking there's influence. Uh, so now they're deciding on what cases to take. And a lot of people uh, from the left are shouting out, well, it doesn't matter if there was any fraud. Biden is still going to be your president. It's kind of like saying I stole your car, but I get to keep it even though I stole it. It doesn't make sense. This is where they're worried. And what they're really worried about is the FISA. See, they have no control and no access to FISA. They cannot see the things that FISA does. They are not privileged to what is going on in FISA. I'm just pointing that out. That's a really big deal. Now, I want to show you um, a man by the name of Wendell Wilkie. He was running for office, and there was a lot of fraud, a lot of fraud. This guy went out on a limb. He wanted Americans to be Americans and stand up for what America is and not bend the knee to the global powers. And this is in the 40s when we had a full blown out, you know, world war. I want you to listen to this guy. Um, he's actually quite inspiring. Because I am a businessman, of which incidentally I am very proud and was formerly connected with a large company, the doctrinaires of the opposition have attempted to picture me as an opponent of liberalism. But I was a liberal before many of those men heard the word. And I fought for the reforms of the elder Lafollis and Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson before another Roosevelt adopted and distorted the word liberal. I believe that the forces of free enterprise must be regulated. I'm opposed to business monopolies. I believe in the right of collective bargaining by labor without any interference. 
and full protection of that obvious right. I believe in minimum standards for wages and maximum standards for hours. And I believe that such standards should constantly improve. I'm in favor of the regulation of interstate utilities, of banking, of the security markets. I believe in federal pensions, in adequate old age benefits, and in unemployment allowances. I believe that the federal government owes a duty to adjust the position of the farmer with that of the manufacturer. If this cannot be done by parity prices, then some other method must be found without too much regimentation of the farmer's affairs. I believe in the encouragement of cooperative buying and selling and in the full extension of rural electrification. And I believe that the federal government owes a very strong obligation to preserve our natural resources. But I do not base my claim to liberalism solely upon my support and advocacy of such reforms. American liberalism does not consist merely in reforming things. It consists primarily in making things. We must substitute for the philosophy of distributed scarcity, the philosophy of unlimited productivity. I stand for the restoration of full production and re-employment in American private enterprise. Present administration has spent $60 billion. The New Deal stands for doing what has to be done by spending as much money as possible. I propose to do it by spending as little as money as possible. This is one issue in this campaign that I intend to make crystal clear before the conclusion of the campaign so that everybody in this country may understand the tremendous waste of their resources and money that have taken place in the last seven and a half years. Pretty awesome, right? Pretty awesome. Now, you know, he was saying, well, you know, the Democrats were attacking him for not being liberal. And Roosevelt had skewed what liberal is. Now, I want you to see this report. Um, you know, actually, I want to show you, where is it? Let me find his, um, the article. Where is it? Hold on. Because I pulled it up uh, for everyone to see from the Library of Congress. All right, here we go. I want to share this with you, and I'll read it for those that are um, uh, not watching. So uh, this is from the Ypsilanti Daily Press, Ypsilanti, Michigan, Tuesday, October 22nd, 1940. Wilkie hurls election theft charge. Aboard Wilkie train en route to Chicago, October 22nd, AP Wendell Wilkie brought his presidential campaign into the Chicago area today just after he accused President Roosevelt of letting uh, that city's Democratic organization and two others try to steal the election for him without even a rebuke. The Republican presidential nominee told an audience in Milwaukee Auditorium Monday night, that his opposition uses lofty talk and low performance and added when the third term candidate begins his belated and forced discussion of the issues of the campaign, I want to put to him a question. 
You say that you seek no dictatorial powers because you submit yourself to a free election. Do you call it a free election when you sit in conference with the boss Hagues, the boss Flynn's, and the Kelly Nashes? Do you call it a free election when the chairman of your committee and he could not do without your knowledge sends out lists of, of government employees and seeks to collect campaign contributions from them? Do you count it a free election when you begin to put pressure upon relief receivers and people upon WPA employment, meaning unemployment? So he's saying, oh, if you don't, then you're not getting unemployment asserting that no such mockery was ever attempted in the history of this country, he said. Here is a candidate for president who has proclaimed himself as a liberal, as a reform candidate, but who allows three of the most corrupt political machines to try to steal the election for him without even a rebuke to them. Wilkie expressed the hope that he would be supported by free and independent American citizens uninfluenced by government, unseduced by flattery, and uncontrolled by their voting ability. That's that's pretty, pretty, pretty nifty, okay? And that was on the front cover of the Michigan page in 1940. It's, um, oh, and you guys weren't seeing it. I'm so sorry. I, I, I always mistaken. So this is the paper, Ypsilanti Daily Press. Here's what I read. Um, so this is where, um, he put that out in regards to Roosevelt. It's, it's quite fascinating. I tell you, if you have coffee, you should always, um, take a look at what, um, the past has to tell you. The past tells you so much. It's, uh, it's quite fascinating. It's quite fascinating. It'll tell you everything you need to know about today. The past definitely proves the future. And speaking of the past, um, I want to play a clip on that was actually aired. Um, it's from the contenders. It was on C-SPAN where they talked about Wendell Wiki, Wilkie. Wilkie. Um, it's quite... Um, interesting, his perspective. Go on to October the 21st in this series of 14 programs, and I see the name Wendell Wilkie, a man from uh, Elwood, Indiana, uh, and also a one-worlder. <laughs> what, what? Okay, so um, remember, Wilkie lost the election, but it's claimed that he changed political history. So this is quite key. What did that mean back then? Well, yeah, he wouldn't have been a he wouldn't have been a conservative Republican today, would he? Um, was he a conservative Republican back then? He was he was the corporate Republican then, and he was engaged in a national debate. Uh, we use the phrase class warfare now. Republicans use it pejoratively when Democrats talk, but you know what? That's what it was: class warfare. Although Wilkie grew up on a farm, and Roosevelt was to the manor born. Uh, Roosevelt and Ickes never saw any irony in that they would punish capitalists. They would plot aboard the yacht and to punish capitalists. But the point is, there was a who's going to who's going to run the economy, the government, or the or big business. And it's a conversation we're still having. What did Wendell Wilkie look like? Wendell Wilkie looked like a bear. He was a great 
big, larger than life, rumpled, wrinkled uh, figure who nevertheless had an aura, who had a charisma. Um, Harold Ickes famously said, going to your corporate point, that uh, Wilkie's candidacy, which sprung out of nowhere, seemingly. And he never had, a, had had a job. Man. No, he was a Jeffrey. He was a Wilsonian Democrat. He'd been a Democrat until, until the New Deal. Uh, but hey, Harold Ickey said that Wilkie's candidacy uh, sprung from the grassroots of every country club in America. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's never been anyone like Wilkie. It's hard to imagine there ever being anyone like Wilkie. Um, he was beyond a dark horse. Did he, he ever, did, did Gene Becker, did he ever have a chance of winning? Oh, no. Um, I suppose of all the, the uh, people who took Roosevelt on, um, he and Dewey probably had the most difficult um, issue. Although, um, uh, and what was 1940, uh, isolationism versus interventionism, and as we remember, the United States was not committed, and Roosevelt was working hard on all kinds of changing public opinion, but also public policies. And uh, Wilkie, uh, it, as it turns out, really could, was an interventionist and uh, ends up with this book yeah. about One World, which uh, I, I'd like to ask you all about. I've never read One World. Uh, is it a, a pre-UN kind of? Uh, yeah. it's, it's the book Woodrow Wilson would have written if he had, you know, <laughs> lived in 1942-43. And, and it goes to, uh, one of the things that runs throughout a lot of these contenders, while of course we focus, they're, they're in the series because they, they were nominated, not just because they ran, but they were nominated by a party to run for president. But Wilkie is a classic example. His greatest service, arguably, to the country came after 1940, uh, when he became an emissary for FDR. And traveled uh, during the war. Traveled he? around yeah. the world and, and foreshadowed the realignment of political parties, which has arguably taken well, place well, since. Well, also, you know, he didn't, Roosevelt outlived him. I mean, Wilkie, Wilkie died in 1944, and so did his running mate. I mean, we would if he, oh, if he, been, yeah, if we, we would have, the, who, the Speaker of the House then? Knows what what been. Been. Yeah, so, Wilkie was only 52 yeah, he died in 1944 when he lost, well, when he supposedly lost the election. Yeah. Yeah. It's somehow appropriate. I mean, he burned out. He yes. lived his life like that, and, uh, and somehow it wasn't a surprise. He um, and his counterpart for vice president um, died when he put his hat in the race again. <laughs> so, so incredible, isn't it? It was a coincidence, of course. Don't let anyone tell you different. Now, we're going to go back into time and we're going to look at how history has been repeating itself. I mean, I did make a mention that everything we're seeing today is exactly what happened ages ago. So um, we are now going to take a look at Karen's of the past. <laughs> Karen's of the past. Let me see if I can zoom in to the screen, make it bigger. I think that's good, right? What do you guys think? Yep, that's real good. Title of the Omaha Sunday paper, October 6, 1918. Not a Turkish harem, but Red Cross workshop unit making flu masks. 
And <laughs> okay, let me. Um, so it says here, all Red Cross workshops in the city are closed with the exception of the Masonic Temple headquarters where Spanish flu masks are being made with great speed to supply the needs of local hospitals and residences by the Collegiate Alumni Unit. Mrs. Walter E. Silver, chairman of the surgical dressings department, is chief flu mask making director. Work started early Saturday morning. As soon as the first masks were completed, the women themselves donned them to complete their work. This was the first means in which Red Cross workers are able to cooperate with health authorities in Omaha in combating the epidemic. As, requ as requested yesterday in advices from Surgeon General Blue, anyone needing flu masks may obtain them by applying at the Red Cross offices in the courthouse. If practicable, the Masonic Temple workrooms will be kept going in order not to interfere too much with getting out much needed surgical dressings. But all women will be required to wear the flu mask. All, all, all women, okay. All other workshops are definitely closed until further notice. The Fort Omaha Canteen and Salvage Departments are also closed. Huh. Talk about history. Let's go to the next one. Which one's this? Wait, hold on. Let me see. Okay, here we go. This is East Oregonian. Monday, I want to say January 6, 1919. Roosevelt is dead. Okay. Former president dies in his sleep at 4.15 from a clot on a lung, retired at 12. Okay. But that's not what we're going to read about. We're going to read about four feet or flu mask is dictum here. Barbers, dentists, waiters, et al. must wear protective masks under orders. Special officers named to help enforce restrictions made. All barbers, dentists, shoe shiners. Uh, hold on. You guys didn't. Okay. Let me go back. Let me just zoom out and show you the headlines for that day. Poles, Germans agree to quit war is the report. Roosevelt is dead. Wilson wins Milan hearts for certain. <laughs> Those are the headlines. Okay, so here's with the flu masks. Here we go. All barbers, dentists, shoe shiners, cutters, fitters of clothing, doctors, nurses, while waiting on patients and waiters and serving meals are only persons allowed to get closer than four feet to the people whom they are transacting business. And Peddleton's new flu ordinance requires that all of these shall wear a proper flu mask over the mouth and nose when engaged in said occupations. While this regulation is in effect, good law-abiding citizens will not get closer than four feet to each other as they converse on the streets or pass each other or transact their business in stores. Special police named. For the enforcing of the above special regulations, as well as looking to a more strict quarantine and the regulating the number of people shall be allowed in stores, movie houses, and other public places in the city, a special meeting of the city council was held this morning. Two amendatory ordinances were passed at the meeting. Mayor Vaughn was not present at the meeting, being confined in his home by sickness. And the ordinances being taken to him were immediately signed by him. One of the ordinances paused this morning, passed this morning, sorry, uh, provides for, continued on page six. Let's go to page six. 
Okay, let's go to page six. Where is it going to continue? Where the ordinances are. Mr. Reinhardt, is this in? Last night. Flu loses by score 17 to 4. <laughs> Where's the rest of this article? This is page six, right? It is. Page six. Call to a physician. Oh, come on, seriously. Let me go back and see. The symptoms. Oh, wait, we should see that. How to use Vicks Vapor Rub in treating the Spanish influenza. Hold on. We should we should read that. Uh, where is it? Why can I not see it? Petitions. Okay. Let me just go back to page one and see what I'm missing here. What am I missing? Did I miss where on it it is? Special continued on page six. Special police. I want to see the special police because they even had a Karen task force. Yeah, okay. I can't find it. I'm not finding it. Let's just go to find out how we can treat this with Vicks. So, see the symptoms are the same. Spanish influenza appeared in Spain in May, and the only reason they found it in Spain because they were in war, right? Remember? Mm -hmm. um, which has swept over the world in numerous epidemics as far back as history. Hippocrates referred to an epidemic in 412 BC, which is regarded by many to have been influenza. Every century has had its attacks. Beginning with 1831, this country has had five epidemics, the last in 1889 through 90. Grip or influenza, as it is now called, usually begins with a chill followed by aching feverishness, nausea, dizziness, and a general feeling of weakness. Temperature 100 to 104. Fever usually lasts from three to five days. The germs attacks the mucous membrane or lining of the air passages, nose, throat, bronchial tubes. There's usually a hard cough, especially bad at night, oftentimes sore throat, tonsillitis. Treatment, go to bed at the first... <laughs> first symptoms. Oh, wait, look at this. Look at these remedies. <clears throat> Eat plenty of nourishing food. Remain perfectly quiet. <laughs> Don't worry. Quinine. <laughs> what? Aspirin or Dover's powder, etc. can be administered. Quinine. Oh, okay. By physician's directions to relieve the aching. Let's see. What else? Now you can use VapoRub. <laughs> It's like indirect. Keep free from colds. How to avoid coughing, sneezing, and spitting. So this is from, you know, 1918. Damn, they had better coverage on how to treat the flu back then, didn't they? <laughs> it's quite interesting. I wanted to go through more of this, but I'm not because I really have to get with it. I have to get going. And I really want us to do this awesome raid today. I have an awesome raid set up. Uh, there's this guy that I've been watching that I like. And so um, I really want us to raid him. And I have to tidy everything up because I have to get going. Guys, movie night on Sunday. I might do an impromptu show on Saturday. No promises. That's only if I get to um, finish up uh, what I need to do. There will be articles coming this weekend that will show you some stuff that you'll be quite surprised to see. Um, for those of you at Twitch, we will be rating in just under a minute 
for those of you not on Twitch, you should get on because it's quite fun. On that note, I want to wish you guys a fabulous weekend. Just watch what happens. It's going to be pretty awesome. God bless everyone. Do 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 do